Good morning. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast Studios. Today is the 13th of April, 2022, and we're going to be, I think, either the absolute last lecture on diabetes, or there may be one more after this, depending on whether or not you get through all this material. So while I'm thinking about it, why don't I just get right into it? So we've been spending now the last three weeks on discussing obesity associated type 2 diabetes. Obesity linked insulin resistance, of course, uh, involves a, a series of dyslipidemic factors, including the production of non-esterified free fatty acids, which are associated with also an increase in tumor necrosis factor alpha. And you get free fatty acids and TNF-alpha from the adipose tissue, but you also get a decrease of adiponectin. And because of the increase in TNF-alpha, FFAs, and the decrease in adiponectin, you get insulin resistance in multiple uh, organ systems, including the adipose and skeletal muscle. So as body fat mass increases, the rate of lipolysis also increases, and that leads directly to free fatty acid production and mobilization, and therefore an elevated concentration of free fatty acids in the serum. Free fatty acids, of course, uh, are dyslipidemic and also lipotoxic. They compete with glucose as an energy source in terms of bioenergetics, and this occurs in skeletal muscle, in cardiac muscle, and also in uh, smooth muscle. Now, it's been postulated that this increase in free fatty acid which would then result in beta oxidation, <clears throat> will of course elevate acetyl-CoA concentrations within the mitochondrion. You're going to then get also a reduced nicotinamide dinucleotide to oxidized nicotinamide dinucleotide ratio. Okay. And with that, you're going to get an inhibition of pyruvic dehydrogenase. So once you start increasing the levels of NADH, you're going to decrease the amount of PDH, which is allowing for carbon to enter into the, the TCA cycle, right? But beyond that, you're also going to inhibit the other dehydrogenases, isocitrate dehydrogenase, alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, succinate dehydrogenase, now that's FADH2, and then finally, uh, malic dehydrogenase, right? And you're going to get that occurring uh, in the mitochondrion, where all the bioenergetic activity is occurring. Now, as a consequence of that, if you put together how regulation occurs in the TCA cycle, you can get an increase in citric acid. Citric acid will then leave the mitochondrion and can be converted back to acetyl-CoA and oxalacetic acid. But as citrate levels merely increase in the cytoplasm, which would also occur, you'll recall that phosphofructor kinase actually can be inhibited by citrate. So that can then lead to an inhibition in glycolysis and a subsequent increase in the concentration of glucose 6-phosphate, which would inhibit 
hexokinase 2 activity because it is inhibited by that, uh, by its product, right? That would then lead to an increase in the accumulation of intracellular glucose and a decrease in glucose uptake, all of which would be hallmarks of type 2 diabetes. Now, in contrast to the mechanism I just mentioned to you about non-steroid free fatty acids inducing insulin resistance, there are other possible and very likely um, co-equal responses that inhibit insulin sensitivity. And these will include that increase in plasma-free fatty acid, but you know, free fatty acid will directly inhibit the glucose transporter. And it also has an effect, free fatty acid also has an effect on um, the activity of the insulin receptor in terms, in terms of its phosphorylation induction and cascade. Okay. So elevated plasma free fatty acid, right, has been associated with a decrease as well as sometimes an increase in intracellular glucose. And glucose transport activity may well be the rate limiting step for free fatty acid induced insulin resistance. So rather than increasing intracellular, intracellular glucose 6-phosphate concentration, elevated free fatty acid actually would decrease intramuscular glucose 6-phosphate levels, which would have the same effect I just mentioned before. Now also keep in mind that free fatty acids, because they can directly influence the insulin receptor and therefore generate insulin resistance, that will also then directly inhibit glucose transport because of the endosomal transporting mechanism in the skeletal muscle and the adipose in particular, and in smooth muscle cell and in the cardiac muscle. But you're also going to get ultimately then a reduction a net reduction of glucose oxidation, but you're also going to get a net reduction of muscle glycogenesis, glycogen synthesis, that is, okay? Okay. So when you look at hyperglycemic, hyperinsulinemic type 2 diabetics versus normal glycemic insulin-resistant offspring of parents with type 2 diabetes, you get evidence that suggests that free fatty acid directly mediates insulin resistance. And here it's an intracellular signal transduction cascade phenomena because free fatty acid mediated insulin resistance will obviously affect protein kinase C activity. So when you get a huge increase in free fatty acid and this then will ultimately induce an accumulation of intracellular diacylglycerol. We went through that pathway before because of lipase-mediated activity or triacylglycerol entry, right? Making DAG associated with the membrane. That's, DAG is going to activate protein kinase C. It's going to activate the two potent forms in skeletal muscle, PKC beta and PKC delta. Now, in addition to this, remember, this is going back a few lectures, a decrease in I-kappa-B-alpha, 
which is again a direct inhibitor of the nuclear factor kappa B, NF kappa B, which is a transcription factor. The involvement of I kappa B kinase beta, that's also known as IKK dash beta, IKK B dash alpha, NF dash kappa B pathway, if you put the three together, and the last one is the transcription factor, that links up the entire pathophysiology and pathobiochemistry of free fatty acid induced insulin resistance in the skeletal muscle and in the adipose, as well as in smooth muscle and cardiac muscle. So again, this all links back to the activation protein kinase C, which will cause insulin resistance because it induces the serine tyrosine phosphorylation of IRS1. That's the insulin receptor substrate one, remember? And then that would inhibit the IRS1 binding and activation of its normal associated protein kinase, which is the phosphoinositol 3 kinase. Remember, that requires, of course, phosphatylinositol trisphosphate in the membrane, right? So other members of the PKC family, many other inflammatory signaling intermediates, again, going back to the IKK beta, also will trigger serine phosphorylation of the IRS1, which is the substrate of the insulin receptor. Reminding you of this now. Now, in this whole description, inhibition of PI3 kinase, phosphatylinositol 3 kinase, Inhibition of that activity now leads to a reduced insulin-stimulated glucose transport because it decreases, yeah, GLUT4 translocation from the endosomal compartment back up to the plasma membrane. So this is how you get type 2 diabetes, hyperglucosemia, and free fatty acid-induced insulin resistance by discussing this intracellular um, dysfunction. Now, besides that, it is obvious that chronic free fatty acid elevation impairs insulin synthesis and secretion at the pancreas because it inhibits the response to free glucose at the islet cells of the pancreas. So this is another important issue of the pathobiochemistry found in type 2 diabetes, right? So you start to get uh, an insulinopenia because you lack sufficient amount of insulin secretion because of the free fatty acid inhibition of that glucose stimulated response in the islet cells. Okay. So when you look at an animal model, and most of what I was describing to you there was really human studies, okay, with a backing up with the animal model. And we look at, there are, there are various animal models, but interestingly, in lipid metabolism, we don't just use mice, we also use diabetic rats. And so they're called male Zucker, which is the name of the, uh, the rat uh, lineage we use, male Zucker diabetic rats. And these rats have been shown to have a huge increase in lipid accumulation in the islet cells. And this is where the term lipotoxicity first came into being, because when you have a high level of lipid accumulation in the islet cells, 
what happens is that beta cell becomes dysfunctional and because it's dysfunctional, it apoptosis. And so obviously then you lose insulin secretion. So let's talk about PPAR gamma, that particular peroxisome proliferator activated receptor of the gamma subtype. Now, it will directly control reverse cholesterol transport. It will increase reverse cholesterol transport. At the same time, it will decrease inflammation. This happens in the vessel wall as well as in the muscle. PPAR gamma increases adiponectin from the adipose tissue. At the same time, it tanks TNF-alpha and resistin production from the adipose. PPAR gamma also increases adipogenesis in, in the uh, adipose and therefore, of course, uh, fatty acyl storage. Now in the liver, PPAR gamma also increases fatty acid storage in the form of triacylglycerol, which you know can lead to a fatty liver, right? So this is one of the negative components of PPAR gamma. Now PPAR alpha has a different role, um, but a lot, of, a lot of these roles sound very similar, but the organ modifications are unique because of the expression of these different PPARs. So PPAR alpha in the vessel wall will also decrease inflammation, will increase reverse cholesterol transport. At the same time in the liver, what it will do is increase fatty acid oxidation rather than storage like the gamma isoform does. It'll increase beta oxidation. It'll decrease triacylglycerol. It'll increase HDL activity mobilization and it will decrease the small dense LDL fraction, which is all normal, healthy for the liver to be carrying out that lipoprotein fractionation expression change. Okay, so PPR alpha is also a good player there. Likewise, in the muscle tissue, PPR alpha is responsible directly for beta oxidation of fatty acids, so generating ATP via that oxidative burst that occurs in aerobic. Uh, contraction. Now, <clears throat> PPAR delta will increase fatty acid beta oxidation in the muscle as well. It will also increase fatty acid oxidation and decrease body fat mass in the adipose tissue where it's expressed. Finally, PPAR delta will diminish inflammation in the vessel wall. So you get the idea these PPAR are primarily positive for ameliorating the obesogenic state and therefore type 2 diabetes. And I wanted to get that all in place because now I want to mention to you the, the PPAR gamma. Let's go into some detail of what I mean by this protein. It's expressed in multiple organ systems and it's a ligand modulated transcription factor. All these PPARs are transcription factors. They work in chromatin retailering phenomena. That is, they induce gene expression. Right? Um, okay, and what they do is they govern the expression of what genes? Well, genes that are involved, as I've just been mentioning, in inflammatory responses, in the redox equilibrium, 
in trophic factor production, in insulin sensitivity, and of course, in the uh, oxidation of lipids and glucose. Now, there are multiple PPAR gamma agonists that are out there in um, the pharmaceutical trade. And these uh, comprise a general family of compounds known as thiazolidinediones. Okay, so these are going to be ketones. And they're used to treat type 2 diabetes. But they have a potential to limit not only diabetes, but also the risk of brain injury like stroke because they mitigate multiple comorbidities. And we've talked about this already, right? What happens in the central nervous system with high levels of free fatty acid. Now, when brain um, necrosis or inflammatory responses start to develop because of obesity and type 2 diabetes, agonizing PPR gamma can allow for what's known as a cytoprotective stress response. And what it will do is increase autophagy while decreasing necrotosis, ferritosis, and even apoptosis. So you're more likely to get back into equilibrium. Now, in an acute injury phase, PPAR gamma will restrict tissue damage because it inhibits this pathway I just mentioned to you, DNF-kappa B, okay. which you know is, is all going to be about inflammatory responses. And it's going to stimulate another axis called the NERF2-ARE axis. Now, we've talked about this before. Not recently, but in the last couple of months. Okay. And what when you activate the NRF to ARE axis, that diminishes or tanks oxidative stress, don't you know? Now, in a chronic phase of acute brain ischemia, PPAR gamma activation in those cells which are being starved of oxygen can cause a repair, not only of the gray matter, but also of the white matter. So we're talking about myelinated and unmyelinated axons. And because of that, it will generate a preservation of the blood-brain barrier because of lack of pro-inflammatory eicosanoids and cytokines and chemokines. And that can actually allow for the repair of neurovascular structures. That means you're going to get a resolution of CNS inflammation and, in fact, even long-term functional recovery as long as it's checked early. So this is why PPR gamma is a target to, to agonize, to increase its activity and how it functions in the CNS. I already explained to you how it functions in the skeletal muscle and the adipose, right? So it's all a positive influence if you can agonize this. Now there's obviously when you overactivate any transcription factor, if there's no control, feedback control on that transcription factor, you're going to start building up the products of that transcription, a lot of RNA, and then ultimately the amount of translation to polypeptide will start to decrease because this is 
how this is RNA-mediated inhibition of transcription, right? You also then turn on or signal a production of siRNAs and microRNAs, which will further debilitate the translatability of the transcripts that are coming from, in this particular discussion, the PBR gamma axis, right? So these are all things to keep in mind, right, when you're thinking about pharmaceutical uh, intervention, right? So what else do I want to say? Um, so PPR gamma seems to play a good role in the early um, uh, episodic and prodromal chronic acute neuropathies. Okay. So it looks like PPR gamma can work on inflammation, metabolism, cell fate. And by that, I mean autophagy versus apoptosis or necrosis, but also simple proliferation. That would, of course, be an oncogenic event. Differentiation, which involves, of course, the, uh, the early stages of neurogenesis to the more mature neuron and then the axon generation and glial um, means of altering the synaptic connections of the axon to the interneurons. All of this is, of course, ultimately involved because whenever you maintain a neurogenic state, you're going to get some neurogenesis and whatever new neurons are generated, those have to be functionally inserted into a unit that is replacing a unit that had been damaged. And this doesn't always occur after puberty in humans. Okay. So there's a lot of caveat about this. I'm just giving you the um, also the positive aspects of agonizing PPR gamma, because I think that's important. So again, let's give, give you a little bit of detail about PPR gamma, because it's authentic biochemistry. It is a multiple domain nuclear transcription factor. And it normally is found within the cytosol. It's not found in an organelle until it is activated and then it makes it to the nucleus. Okay. When it binds to activated ligands, it will then translocate to the nucleus and it will bind to response elements, as you know, the classical canonical transcription factor. Genes that are activated by the PPR gamma, uh, again, uh, relate to adipocyte differentiation, if you're talking about the adipose, but also lipid storage and release, if you're talking about skeletal muscle, smooth muscle, et cetera, and cardiac muscle. So PPR gamma protein, obviously, is a positive agonistic target to, to function as an anti-diabetic pharmaceutical. And I already told you that the major class of drugs are these thiazolidine diones, or TZDs, they're called. And there's two of them in particular that get uh, prescribed. There's rosiglitazone and pioglitazone. And what those drugs are called in pharmaceutical trade are insulin sensitizers because what they do is they promote the sensitivity of the recept insulin receptor to uh, ligand. 
And it promotes, in other words, insulin signal transduction cascade from the receptor through the IRF, through all the subcellular sequelae. And this occurs in the major organ tissues where you get uh, insulin-dependent glucoseptide, that's the skeletal muscle and the adipose. So these TCDs work through protein-protein and protein-DNA interactions because they're working all the way from the level of the promotion of the transcription factor activation. Remember, that's a processing from the cytoplasm to the nucleus. And then, of course, the interaction of the PPR gamma with DNA because we're functioning at this level of response element. Okay? So PPARs in general are the class of them, ligand-dependent transcription factors, and they're known as a type 2 nuclear receptor. So they're in that superfamily, and, and that actually involves many other polypeptides and hormones. And so hormones function the same way by binding to their protein intracellularly. These include hormones like estrogen, thyroid hormone, retinoic acid, etc. Okay. Now, they were classified as orphan receptors. And that first time PPAR gamma was described, it was just came out of being called an orphan receptor and became a peroxisome activated receptor once it was learned that it was functioning to the level of the peroxisome, which means you're looking at the oxidation of fatty acids playing a significant role in the activation of the transcription factor. And remember, that's what peroxisome's function is to um, do a retailering of plasma membrane as well as Golgi, ER, and mitochondrial, very long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, to, to set them up for partial beta oxidation, maintaining, for example, their omega-3, omega-6 signatures in terms of positional isomers of double bonds, but at the same time, removing the potential for them to be auto-oxidized as they are resynthesized and put back into the membrane. That's a very important issue. So you see how this is, goes directly into full-blown lipid metabolism, right? This is all about things that we talk talk considerable uh, about in, in authentic biochemistry. We're deep into membrane-associated lipid metabolism. So the human PPR isotypes, again, remember uh, for PPR are alpha, gamma, and delta, and they have been involved in being in the pharmaceutical trade for a long time because targeting those three PPARs is used to treat cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, uh, and even obesity sense restricted. So TCD, TZD binding, the PPAR gamma alone, does not, see, does not seem to give the full robust plenum of pharmacological response. So you need PPAR gamma forms in a heterodimeric complex with retinoic acid receptor alpha. So that means RXR alpha. Because remember, these are transcription factors, and often you get a dimer transcription factor there at the level of chromatin remodeling, right? 
to allow for uh, nation transcription based on a response element, a cis element in the DNA. So I'm going to have to stop here because I know right when it starts getting interesting, I know, but I have to stop here just reminding you that um, ligands for the RXR are going to be, it's going to basically be nine cis retinoic acids. So we're going to have to bring that into a discussion. It's a lipid, of course, right? It's derived from vitamin A. So I'm going to stop here. See, I got another lecture at least. I, I'm not going to apologize because we're going to get into lipids. And, and my, um, oh, I would say ungarnered, unrepentant uh, dialectical consideration. Notice I didn't call it an opinion. There is no problem of anyone, and I include this with physicians, with research scientists, uh, with hospital administrators, with lay people, uh, and with graduate students and professors and researchers in general. There's never any problem, any worry, any concern that you will learn too much about lipids because you probably know very, very little of lipids. Most people don't. And even what you do know, because it doesn't give you the full picture, probably isn't very useful. So that's why you come to authentic biochemistry, because you're listening to unauthentic lipid biochemists. All right. So this is Dr. Dan Guerra uh, from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast Studios in the beautiful Inland Northwest uh, of the USA. It's the 13th of April 2022, and uh, I will sign up by saying bye for now.